Thank you, Ryan. Would y'all thank Ryan with me for making us aware of a need we can pray about? We've got a Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 13 through 16 today. So on Friday, my wife and I uh, had an opportunity to take the kids to Philadelphia, got them out of school a little bit earlier, early, and uh, took them to see the Dude Perfect live show. Is anyone familiar with Dude Perfect? Yeah, it was fun. It was great. The kids love it, trick shots, and uh, it's a fun group of guys. They gave a gospel presentation at the end, which was really um, so encouraging. And so we did that, but you know, Philadelphia is a drive, right? And so the show ends like 9-ish, 9.15-ish, and then we get out of the show, and we got to go get the car, and you got to sit in the traffic for a little while to get out of the, you know, Wells Fargo parking lot. And so we're headed home, and it's one of those, you know, later night drives, and I'm feeling tired. Now, if you're, like, really tired, you need to pull over, right? But if you're just a little tired, do you have strategies that you use to stay awake? Yes? All right, so let's do a little survey here. How many of you, your strategy is roll down the windows, get the fresh air in the car? How many of that's, that's what you go for? Okay, awesome. Combinations of these strategies are allowed, by the way. How many of you, uh, gum or mint, you're going to go the gum or mint route? Okay, less of you. Interesting. All right, very good. How many of you, I mean, let's just go ahead and admit it. How many of you, it's crank the radio or the, you know, and sing as loud as you can? Oh, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for that. Right? You, you just diva going all the way, right? As loud as you can go. How many of you, it's um, the ultimate strategy, which is sunflower seeds? Yes, absolutely. Some of you know this is the greatest food ever for staying awake. And it's not just sunflower seeds. Can I just say barbecue sunflower seeds? That's where you need to go. Thank you very much. This is good. I got claps. I got an amen in the last service. I feel solid. Right? And you have these strategies. Why do you have them? Because falling asleep would be dangerous, right? It would be problematic. It would, be, it would create, a, create a real problem, right? So staying awake is deeply important. And as we've seen as we're going through this book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is encouraging us to keep awake. Now, in, in this context, in the scriptures, what Paul means when he says keep awake in chapter five, verse six, is be ready for Jesus to return. He says, you're not children of the darkness to be concerning yourself with the things of darkness. You're children of the light who are living in that light and therefore ready for Jesus to return. And we've actually seen that being ready for the return of Jesus has way more to do with walking in ways that are obedient to him than it has to do with knowing certain facts or timelines or other sorts of things that are of interest and worth looking into. But really to be ready for the return of Jesus is to be living in a way that is obedient to him day by day. Would you agree with that? That's what he means when he says, keep awake. And so we've seen throughout this series the importance of being awake, of not being asleep, but of being ready, living in a way that's ready for the return of Jesus. And as we come to chapter two, here's where we've been so far. In chapter one, Paul started by giving thanks for the Thessalonian church. It's like 11 verses of him just encouraging them and saying, this is what a church that is awake looks like. He's actually encouraging them and saying, we, we saw eight things there were indicators that they were living in a way that was pleasing to God. And then at the beginning of chapter two, he started to talk about the person who's awake, the Christian who's awake and ready for the return of Jesus, boldly proclaims the gospel, isn't afraid or ashamed, isn't shy about bringing the gospel to bear in the places where God sends them. And then last week, so that was two weeks ago, and then last week we saw sort of the marks of the ministry uh, of someone who wants to minister in the name of Christ that is someone who is awake and ministering to others. And now we're gonna get more of that next week, more of Paul saying this is what it looks like to be a minister of the gospel. 
But this week, we get a little four verses in the middle of chapter two where he's gonna return to giving thanks again for the Thessalonian church. He's gonna say, there's something else I'm thankful about. It's almost like he said, I'm so thankful and he listed all these things and then he started to talk about his ministry and why that was the mark of true gospel ministry. It's almost as if he just had to go back to giving thanks again just for a minute because he's so thankful for them. And so we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13 through 16, What Paul's going to say to us is he's going to give us one more mark of a Christian who is truly awake and ready for the return of Jesus. But he's not just going to give us a mark. He's going to give us a strategy for staying awake. So this thing that we're going to see is both the mark that you are waiting eagerly for the return of Jesus. And it's also a way to keep yourself in that place or to grow into that place if that's not where you're living currently. So let's look at it together, verses 13 through 16, and let's see what Paul has to say there. Verse 13 is going to be our primary focus. He says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it was always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, you see a number of things there. But here's what I would argue is, the, is the, the main idea. When Paul stops to give thanks, he's thanking the Th- for God, for the Thessalonians, that when they heard the word of God, they received it as the word of God, not as the word of men. He said, you heard it and you knew that this was from God, not just something that men made up. And that word is at work in you. So here's what I, my hope is for today. I want to say to you that the mark of a Christian who is awake is that they are approaching the Bible as if it is the very word of God. Approaching the Bible as if it is the very word of God and living then in light of that, that it's at work in them. Now, Paul goes on to say a few more things in particular about, you know, verse 14, he talks about a mark of someone who is treating the Bible as God's word or at least receiving God's word as God's word. And then he spends a little time, and I'll do a little side note here, on his relationship with the Jewish religious leaders. You notice that there. And, and that's a, you hear him being a little bit uh, frustrated, perhaps, with them. I want to encourage you, as you look at this, one of the things you remember is that Paul was chased out of city after city by the Jewish religious leaders. Everywhere he'd gone to share the gospel, in Berea, in Thessalonica, where he's writing back to now from Corinth, it's the Jewish religious leaders who ultimately shoved him out of town And that's why he's saying they drove us out and they're hindering the purposes of God and allowing people to hear the gospel. They're thwarting the very purposes of God. And he says, God has a discipline for them as a result of that. But what I don't want you to do is to hear those words and assume that God is against the nation of Israel or the the people of Israel. Those who reject the Messiah, whether they be Jew or Gentile, there's a a disciplinary hand of God and and hopefully a response to that, drawing them in. But always remember that in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, kind of read that in conjunction with this and remember that there 
Paul spends a good number of chapters talking about God's design and purpose for the nation of Israel, that he still has plans for that nation that he desires to accomplish, bringing them to salvation through Jesus, and that it's Paul's eager heart that his own countrymen would be saved. So here he has a harsh word for them. Romans 9 through 11, we see that he has a tender heart towards this group of people. I just want to make sure we hear that as we read this text today. But our focus is not so much at the end of this text, but at the beginning of it where Paul gives us that idea where he says, those who are awake, Christians who are awake, are approaching the Bible as God's very word. And we wanna ask two questions and answer those questions today. The first one is, what does it mean to approach the Bible as God's word? What is the mark that I'm doing that? You might hear that and go, okay, I want to approach the Bible as God's word. How can I know if I'm doing that? So what does it mean to do that? And then the second question is, how is God's word then at work in those who approach them in that way? I just wanna encourage you, I wanna take you all over the scriptures and show you all the ways the word of God will be at work in you if you will approach it as God's word. My hope is that you would walk out of here today with a deeper affection for God's word and a deeper commitment to know it and to love it and cherish it. Fair enough? All right, that's my desire today for myself, for you. Now let me start with that first question. What does it mean to approach the Bible as God's word? Let's try and answer that question. Well, the first thing you need to do is recognize something. As you read this text, when Paul says that the Thessalonians received the word of God, not as the word of men, but as God's very word, you probably recognize, well, isn't he talking there, Trent, primarily about the gospel itself? that he brought to them the good news that God was the creator of the universe, that we had sinned and rebelled against him, that he had then sent his son to live a perfect life and die a death for the penalty for our sins and then rise from the dead, that they heard that news, put their faith in it and received it. He's not so much talking about the scriptures, is he, Trent? As much as he's talking about the message that he brought to bear upon them the gospel. And that's absolutely true for the Thessalonians. So why would I say then that the implication for us is that we need to approach the Bible as God's word? Well, here's why. Go back to verse 12. What did Paul say? Not just that he brought the gospel to them, that proposition that I just said to you, but that he taught them how to apply that gospel into every area of their life. Remember verse 12 that we looked at last week, which says this. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner, what church? Worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, what we see in verse 12 is that Paul didn't just say, here's the gospel, I'm gonna tell it to you, you believe, awesome, okay, I'm gonna leave town now. But what Paul did is he said, oh, and here's how you live in light of that gospel. Let me teach you. You believe this now. Let me teach you how to walk in a manner worthy of God. Let me show you how to apply this. And he does this with the Corinthian church in their sexual morality. He's teaching this is what a godly sexual ethic looks like. And he does it with the Galatians when he talks to them about how do you apply the gospel to the idea of justification? Is it that you are justified by your works or by faith? And how do you live when you know that you're not justified by your works? He's teaching them to do what? to apply the gospel. He's doing it here with the Thessalonians because they have concerns about the return of Jesus. They're worried that they may have missed it. They're worried that they won't be ready for it. And Paul's going, aha, let me teach you how to apply the gospel to the future and the hope that you have in Jesus. Does that make sense? So there, from time to time, I'll tell you how practical this is. From time to time, I will hear from someone who will say to me, Usually when I've maybe talked about some cultural issue and it's one that makes them a little uncomfortable, and this is, I understand this, they will say, hey, Trent, you, shouldn't you just preach the gospel? Just preach the gospel. To which I wanna say, I hear you, 
we will always be preaching the gospel. We must be preaching the gospel. The proclamation of gospel that I just said to you, we need to preach that over and over and over again. But it's not as if we can just come here Sunday by Sunday and go, here's the gospel. You have sinned, rebelled against God. He has sent his son to take care of that. Now, if you'd place your faith in him and you get it and then just go, okay, and we're, done, and we're good. Close your Bibles, let's go. Because the scriptures are there to teach us how to apply that gospel into every area of life. Would you agree with that? there to teach us how to do that in every area, whether it be areas where we're culturally experiencing a ton of tension, like racial reconciliation and what is justice, what is biblical justice versus what is sort of social justice or secular ideas of justice. It's, it's there to inform and to instruct us in every area of life. And we need to learn to sit underneath its teaching. I mean, most of our problems and challenges come often from an unwillingness to, to really examine the scriptures and really let them sit in authority over us. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, like how to approach the scripture as the word of God. But what I wanna say to you is, then as you see, if Paul is saying you receive the word of God, all this teaching that he did, right, to teach him how to walk in a manner worthy of God, not just the propositional gospel, but all this other instruction that was the application of that gospel, then what Paul is saying to them is you received everything we taught you as God's word. Now, where do we find God's word most clearly given to us today? I hope we all know the answer is the scriptures, yes? The Bible itself. And so for us, where we sit now in the history of redemption that God is working, the clearest implication of this text for us is to say, how do I approach the Bible as God's word? How do I come to the Bible as God's word? So that's why I say that the implication of this text for us is how do we come to the Bible as God's word and then what work will it do in our lives if we do that? Fair enough, everybody with me? All right, awesome, great. So that's what we're looking at. Now, let's go back. What's our question? How do we approach the Bible as God's word? Well, the first answer to that question is found in verse 14, coming right on the heels of verse 13, and it's that we hold to the truth of the Bible even when it's costly, even when we're persecuted for believing it, and even when it's contrary to our own desires. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we find, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Remember, they're in Macedonia. That's one region. And he's saying these churches in Judea, which were prominently made up of Jews who had come to believe in Jesus, they were persecuted, and you mimicked them, or you imitated them. How did they imitate them? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, their countrymen. So what Paul is saying is, in the same way that your brothers who were kind of the first to receive the gospel and respond to it in the area surrounding Jerusalem, in the same way that they were persecuted for that, but they didn't stop believing. They held on to the teaching as God's very word. You've done the same thing. Thessalonians, you've done the same thing. Your own countrymen have caused you harm. They've, they've come against you because you've believed our message about Jesus and what he's done and what that means for your whole life but the indicator that you are receiving this as God's very word is that you didn't back away from it even when there was cultural pressure to do so. Does that make sense? And here's the thing, I would say I find one of the things you need to know is holding to the Bible as God's word usually doesn't change, like if someone holds the Bible as God's word and then at some point doesn't anymore, it's usually not something that happens overnight. It's not something where someone creates an argument and they go, oh, I never thought of that. I've changed my whole view on this. What happens is 
their um, commitment to the authority of Scripture gets chipped away at day by day over a long period of time until at some point they no longer hold to it. And it's usually two things that do it. It's the pressure of the culture from the outside and the pressure of our own desires from the inside. One of those two things. I find a desire within myself perhaps that I don't like something I read in Scripture and I look for a way around it. That's a dangerous pattern because what it does over time is it puts you in the position of determining what is true and what is not true. It puts you in the position, your desires, your discernment in the place of going, I don't like this, so I'm gonna figure out a way around it, which is ultimately you saying, I'll be the one who determines what is true rather than letting the scriptures tell you what is true. That happens from the inside, from the outside. It is hard to hold up against cultural pressure over long periods of time. And in particular, for those of you who are young, it is hard to hold up against cultural pressure that says that is a regressive or backwards way of thinking. I can't believe you believe what that old book says. Look, friends, it is hard. But one of the things that helps me is that I remember that all worldviews essentially boil down to this when it comes to truth. Either truth is revealed or truth has to be discerned for yourself, has to be found for yourself. And if our worldview, as it does, teaches us that truth is revealed and not just revealed by an arbitrary source or by a God who is sort of out to get us, but it's revealed to us by a God who loves us enough to have sent his son to die for us, then I can trust that all that he would reveal, even if it seems counter to what I might myself think is good, or I myself have some sense of like, oh, I don't know why you would do that, that all that he would do and all that he would give is good. Friends, I wanna remind you of this. It may seem at first, in, at first glance when you're tempted to sort of go, I don't get why the Bible teaches this and I don't like it. It's gonna be very tempting and it's gonna feel good perhaps in the short run to relieve yourself of that tension by saying, I'll just, I'll just kind of let it go. I'll just let that one little piece go, that one little piece of teaching about sexual ethics, that one little piece of teaching about marriage, that one little piece of teaching about morality or work or the way that I treat my neighbor or the way that I think about this person or that person, the sojourner and the alien among us. I'll just let go of that one little piece of what the scripture teaches because I don't like it. When you begin to do that, you are headed down a dangerous road because you are beginning to head down the road of determining the truth for yourself rather than letting it be revealed to you by God who has given you his word. Does that make sense? Now listen, if I said to my kids, hey, you guys wanna be left home alone and be in charge and do whatever you want, at first they would go, that's awesome. They're gonna say donuts for dinner. It's gonna be incredible. We're gonna run the house. Nobody's gonna have to tell me to clean up. I got no chores. I want to, yeah, I wanna run the show. I want to be home alone. And they're gonna love that until it gets dark and the cupboard is empty. And that's when they're not gonna like it so much anymore. And that's not unlike what this is like. At the first glance, it might seem to you good to start to head in this direction. And I just wanna urge you and implore you to go back again and again. We are a people who believe in a doctrine of revelation, which means that God has revealed truth to us and we cannot know truth apart from that revelation. He has primarily revealed it in his word to us and we submit all things under the authority of that word, whether they suit our dispositions or they don't. 
whether the culture from the outside aligns and agrees or whether it does not. Fair enough? That's the first pressure. That's, that's one of the indicators, right, that it comes against is that persecution. Now, let me give you four, uh, in order to help you, because we need to, again, ask this question. Well, okay, so hold to it in the face of difficulty or face of persecution. That's one way to treat the Bible as God's word. Are there others? And I would say yes, and here they are. I want to give you four theological categories. I'm just borrowing this from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, a great text to have on your shelf if you want a good Bible reference uh, on your shelf. And in that, he gives four characteristics of Scripture. If you want to approach God's word as God's word, not as the word of man, then you approach it believing these four things about it. That it is sufficient, that it is necessary, that it is clear, and that it is authoritative. Let me say them again. I'm going to do them in reverse order this time because this is the way I'm going to talk about them. That it is authoritative, that it is clear, that it is necessary, and that it is sufficient. Those are the four characteristics of Scripture that theologians have talked about for generations. So let's talk about each one of those, again, briefly here, but I want to give you an idea so that you can know if you are actually approaching the Bible as God's Word. So we say the Scripture has authority. That's its first characteristic, and I would argue all the other ones fit underneath this one or are connected to it. So when I say the Scripture has authority, here's what I mean. We believe that all the words in Scripture are God's words so that disbelieving or disobeying any of them is disbelieving and disobeying God. That makes sense. You cannot disbelieve or disobey the Bible in anything and say, I am not disbelieving or disobeying God. To disbelieve or disobey God's written word is to disbelieve and disobey him. It has authority. You must come to the Bible as one under authority, not as one over it who determines whether you like it or you don't like it. The first instinct and impulse of every Christian should be, this is God's word and I will come to it in submission. That's the only way to truly understand it. And that leads us to our second character trait of God's word, which is this, clarity. We say the word of God is clear. By that we mean this. It can be understood by everyone who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Now you hear authority there again, don't you? Everyone who comes to God's word asking for his help and being willing to follow what it says will find that the scriptures are clear. Now that doesn't mean that we don't need good interpretive principles that we don't have to study hard, that there aren't passages that take some real uh, you know, mulling over to discern, okay, what is this teaching? I, I'm not meaning by clear that you can just read it kind of lightly and go, oh, got it. But what I am saying is this, is you don't need a theological degree to understand God's word. You do not need to be. The, the Bible is not just for scholars, it is for every believer indwelt by the Spirit of God who illuminates that word to us and teaches us from it. You can be fed day by day by day by God's word. Don't wait to come here on Sunday and have someone teach you to feed you. This is a good thing that we do, and it's a high calling, and I praise God that he would allow me to be a teacher in this context, but you do not need me. You have God's word. There was like two amens. There should be like 20, 30, 40. 
You understand what I'm saying? The word of God is clear. You can read it and understand it. You just have to come to it and say, God, I come seeking your help, wanting to know you. Please show me what you teach. And I commit myself to obey it. I commit myself to follow what I read here. This, by the way, is what when 1 Corinthians, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when we say it's clear, when we'd ask, well, why then do, why does an unbeliever read this? Someone who doesn't believe, why do they read it? And it doesn't seem to re, it doesn't seem to hit, doesn't seem to resonate. It's because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You understand how important it is that the Spirit of God indwells you. That's why you can understand Scripture. It is clear because you have given yourself to the person of Jesus. His Spirit has indwelled you. and Now his word is illuminated to you. That's what we mean when we say Scripture is clear. The third quality of Scripture is that it's necessary that it's necessary. Here's what we mean by that. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. We wouldn't know what the gospel was if it wasn't written for us there. Growing spiritually and knowing God's will. And knowing God's will. So we do not approach the Bible as God's word unless we see it as absolutely necessary. We could not have been saved without it because we wouldn't know the gospel itself. We cannot grow in Christ's likeness without it because it is the predominant shaping influence upon our lives as Christians. Nor can we follow God's will without it. If you're seeking to know God's will for your life without turning to the scriptures, you will be deficient. The word of God is necessary for every believer. It's not a nice little add-on that we go, okay, if, you know, if I get some time for it today, then that will be good. That will be like the bonus version of my walk with Jesus. No, we say the scriptures are necessary. And if they're necessary, then we should hunger for them because we need them. They are true food to us, yes? And then the last quality or characteristic of scripture that we look at here is sufficiency, sufficiency. And what we mean by sufficiency is this, is that the Bible contains all the words of God that he intended for his people to have. There's not a word missing that he wants us to have. There's not a word missing. And it has all we need for salvation, for trusting him, and for obeying him. Now let me say there, that does not preclude the idea. The sufficiency of scripture does not preclude that as we are praying about an issue in our lives, that the spirit would guide and direct us about where he wants to go. That is not bringing the sufficiency of scripture into question. Now, any revelation we think we receive from the Spirit must be tested against the Scripture, yes? Must be tested against the Scripture. It doesn't, sufficiency of Scripture doesn't preclude reading a good book to learn from it, right? Like if you're wanting to grow in your marriage, reading a, a good biblical book on marriage is a great idea. That's a, that's a wonderful idea from an author who is trying to illuminate the Scriptures for you. That's wonderful. Sufficiency of Scripture doesn't mean don't ever read another book. Don't ever look to other other um, texts to sort of teach you, inform you, help you think about an issue. It means measure all those things against the scripture. But here's what it does mean. If, the, if you're praying about an issue in your life and you don't sense the spirit gives you a revelation, if you are in need of knowing what to do next or learning about how to grow in your marriage, 
If you had no other book and you have no revelation from the Spirit, in the Word of God, you have everything you need to obey God. You don't need anything in addition to God's Word to know how to obey Him. Does that make sense? That's deeply important. Deeply important. That's what we mean when we talk about the Scripture being sufficient. It has what we need for life and godliness. It has what we need to guide and direct us in the issues of life. And perhaps it doesn't, I I think about an issue in my family and man, I'm trying to discern what to do. If I don't know exactly what to do, I can take the principles of scripture, apply them into that situation and then walk forward by faith knowing that I am in obedience to the will of God. That's what we mean when we say the scriptures are sufficient. Now, So that's my best answer to the first question. How do I know if I'm approaching the Bible as God's word, not as the word of man? I'm holding onto it in persecution and I'm approaching it as sufficient, as necessary, as clear, and as authoritative. Okay, with me. Now let's ask the second question. Try and answer that. If I approach the Bible this way, what will it do in my life? What will happen to me if I approach the Bible this way? And friends, My goal here is just to walk you through just a few scriptures that I hope will cause you to go, I hadn't pondered that in a while. Maybe you've never pondered some of these things. The power of the word of God is awesome because it is God's very word breathed out by him so that you and I would have it. And what a treasure it is. So let's look at that that question then. What will happen how is it at work? Now remember in verse 13, this is what Paul said when he said, you receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but what is it, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So what he's saying there is, when you approach it this way, there's gonna be work that it's going to do in you. So let's look at a couple of these. The first work that we can find that it does is that it works through us to accomplish God's work in the world no matter our circumstances. It works through us to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in the world. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Now this is Paul, his, probably his final letter that he writes in his life, writing to his beloved friend and disciple Timothy. And in this, he is in prison. He knows he's not gonna get out. He knows he's going to be killed for the gospel for the sake of Jesus. And look at what he writes. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. What does he say next? But the word of God is not bound. I want you to see Paul sitting in a prison cell pinning this letter. Chains on his hands, chains on his feet. Perhaps he could be discouraged And you could excuse it if he was to say, well, I guess there's not much more I can do for the sake of Jesus now that I'm bound up in these chains. What am I gonna do? I'm about to die. I'm on my way to the end. I've done everything I can do. But what does he say? The word of God is not bound. No matter what circumstances you find yourselves in, no matter the limitations placed upon you in your job, if you will speak the word of God, it will go to work. Stop giving people your opinions and give them God's word. Never be afraid when a friend brings to you a challenging issue, never be afraid to say, 
You know, that reminds me of something I read in the Bible. Could I share it with you? Give them God's word. And I don't mean to imply that it's some magical formula. You just say a scripture and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I've changed everything. But the word of God will go to work on them. It will go to work in their hearts and in their minds. Your words will be forgotten tomorrow. But the word of God will will go to work and do its work because the word of God is never bound. Praise God. No matter what limitations you find within yourself, no matter what limited circumstances you find yourselves in, if you will speak God's word, it will do God's work. So know it. Know God's word so that you can give it. The second thing that we see that the word of God does is that it has power to to guard us from sin. Look at Psalm 119, verse 11. The psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. That's one worth memorizing, isn't it? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It has power to guard you against those sinful practices and desires. Do you get what what the author of the Psalms is writing? He says, I've stored up your word, not just in my mind, but in my heart. And for the Hebrew, the heart was the center of a person. It included their thinking and also their emotions. It was the sum total of the center of who they were. And so when the psalmist writes, I've stored up your word in my heart, he means I know it in my mind and I cherish it in my heart. I desire it. I long for it. I have stored it up And what does that storing up do? It changes my desires to the thing that was sinful that I used to love and want. I don't want it anymore because the word of God has gone to work in me and changed me. You get how profound this is? This is not any other book. This is not, look, you and I have all read a good book at the beach on vacation and we've forgotten the plot six months later. That's not how this word works. It is alive And if you will plant it in yourself, it will change you. Give yourself to the study and the submission to the word of God. Let it go to work. Stop thinking you need 20 sermons a week. You need the word of God. Over and over and over again, you need to immerse yourself in it, cherish it, love it, read it, memorize it, ponder it, meditate upon it when your head's on the pillow at night, pray it, You need the word of God. Your word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart. Hidden it there. It's tucked away. So that I might not sin against you. It will guard you against those sinful desires. There's a battle against sin in our lives, yes? It's a battle against sin. Take up the weapon. Take it up. So often when I talk to to brothers and sisters who are struggling with sins that they keep repeating, what what is your Bible reading like? What is your Bible memorization like? And they're just non-existent. And I just wanna say then, friend, you're not taking up the first tool. I'm not sure what else to do for you. Like take up the first tool and then let's talk about What's going on once that's taking place? We've got to do that first. Look at what else the Bible does, the word of God. It has power, staying in Psalm 119, it has power to make us wise. 
And I love this. Here's the thing, if you will take up the Bible, nothing can stop you from becoming wise. Now, you have things that you've wanted to do in your life and you haven't been able to do them, yes? When I was in, you know, a kid, I wanted to play basketball in the NBA. Somewhere around eighth grade, I realized that wasn't gonna happen, right? And it didn't matter how hard I worked or how much I tried, it, was, it just was not in the cards for me. This is not how God made me or designed me, right? So you come to realize that and you go, look, there's things I would love to do in life that I'm just never going to be able to accomplish. Wisdom is not one of those things. If you want to be wise, and you read the word of God, and you memorize the word of God, and you cherish the word of God, nothing can stop you from becoming wise. You will be wise. It's not a prayer you're going to pray, and God's gonna go, no, I don't think so. Not really interested in you being any wiser than you are right now. I think you've reached about as much as I want you to have. He will grow you in wisdom. More and more and more. And here's the beauty. It doesn't depend on your age. You can be young and be wise. You can be old and be a fool. Look at what Psalm 119 says. Verses 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You see the beauty of that? You cannot be prevented from becoming wise when you give yourself to the word of God. And what's more, you saw there, he says, I have more wisdom than the age. And he's young, but he knows he's wise because the scriptures have invaded his life. And I love that. And did you notice too, you never have to fear that you will give yourself to the word of God and over time they'll become bitter to you. The longer you study, the wiser you become, the sweeter the word becomes to you. Like honey, the psalmist says, like honey to my lips is your word. Last thing we'll show about scriptures and it's power, not just power to make us wise, not just power to guard us from sin, not just power to accomplish God's work no matter our circumstances. It is power to reveal our true desires and our true intentions. In other words, the living word of God comes into us and shows us who we really are. And it's in the mercy of God that he does. Look at Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is how alive this book is. This is how different it is from any other book that you'll ever read. It actually enters into you and discerns who you are and shows it to you. No other book can do that. But this is God's very word. And when it comes into you, it becomes like a mirror to you saying, this is not good. This I am well pleased with. Well done, my son. Well done, my daughter. I love this about you. This is not pleasing to me and it must change. The word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You think they're hidden? They're not hidden. Not only does God see them, God's word illuminates them. 
you will give yourself to the word of God. Remember what he says. It's the kindness of God, he says in Romans, that leads us to repentance. His word will not be harsh with you, but it will show you your true intentions and invite you in his kindness to walk in repentance where those intentions do not align with his heart. Now we could go on and on and on about what the word of God, the power of the word of God. The word of God abides. First Peter tells us that it is, it says flesh is going to, all flesh is like grass. It's going to be burned up like grass, but the word of God, what? Abides forever. In other words, it's gonna last beyond any philosophy of the world and it has an ability to stay within you and abide within you and continue to shape you. It doesn't leave you. The word of God abides forever. So again, we could go on and on and on, but here's my encouragement to you. Number one, you must approach the Bible as God's very word. That means coming to it as sufficient, as necessary, as clear, and as authoritative. And as you do, my encouragement to you is watch what he will do. Watch what he will do. He will change you and shape you and move through you because the word of God is powerful and alive and active. So here's my challenge to you. I don't know what your Bible reading habits are right now. Perhaps you're exceeding this. Wonderful. Keep exceeding it. But here's my challenge. For the next two weeks, every day for the next two weeks, read at least one chapter of the Bible. See what will happen. See how it starts to shape your thoughts. One chapter every day for two weeks. You want to read two? Praise God, read two. You want to go three? You want to go five? You can't do too much. Give yourself to the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you and we love your word. It is good. We thank you for it. We thank you that you have given it to us. Father, God, in all your mercy and goodness and love, you've given us a written word so that we might know you. And we pray that you would guard us in this doctrine of revelation that we believe that you have revealed to us all that we need, given to us all that you desire to give to us and that we would receive it and walk in it. Help us not to be tempted by the temptations of the world that would cause us to mistrust or disbelieve your word. Help us not to be fooled by the desires of our own heart and our flesh. Things we want to do that your word says, no, that's not good. And so we find a way around your word. Help us not to do that too. Forgive us when we do. In your mercy, teach us to love your word. Now would you receive the praises of your people. You are worthy to be exalted and lifted on high. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.